Well, good morning to you, friends, and some of whom I do not know, so you're especially welcome. Thought about, so this is a, one of our few, we have a few freestanding sermons, sort of free agent sermons, as it were. You can kind of preach anything you want to uh, between series and between books throughout the year, and uh, this is one of them. So it was going to be, stewardship was a placeholder, you know, every quarter or twice a year or once a year, it's good to preach on how we're, we're stewards, not owners, and of everything that God's loaned us, not given us, right? We'll answer to him one day. But as I was praying, I really felt like that was too disjointed. We've been, you know, we finished with Easter, the resurrection of the God-man. He started something completely new. Great commission the next week, and then we're starting revival next week. I just felt like, ah, I want to keep this going. I want to, what, what can I, Lord, what can I preach that will just get us started, just get us marinating in the juices of revival uh, as, we, as we pray it down, as we preach it, as we embrace it, as we embrace the living God. So honestly, I just felt God leading me to this text, Isaiah 6. I don't know that I've preached it. I know Paul has. It was his apparently third sermon ever, and he said he was shaking before, before he started, went out, not out of nervousness, but this is an amazing, amazing text. It's sort of an iconic um, Old Testament-wide, Scripture-wide vision of God that Isaiah gets. So I'm, I'm humbled to be able to step into this from, for a few minutes with you guys this morning. And I just want to say that this is a vision of God that, um, that Isaiah gets. And this is, quite simply, getting a vision, a true vision of the true and living God is the only foundation for revival. So as we go into revival the next five weeks and formally start the series, this is not formally part of that series, but it, man, it is, I feel like it's one of the best places we could be, camping out in, setting our eyes with Isaiah on the living God. Verse 1 of chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Pause. Isaiah has a vision of God, and he has this vision of God in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had reigned over the southern tribes of Israel, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, for over 50 years. He started ruling when he was 16, I believe. And so he had been a king for over half a century, as long as almost anyone alive could remember. And the year that he, and Judah was fairly prosperous at this point. And things were going fairly well, although Uzziah had been a good king and a faithful king to God, but he had allowed some shrines, some foreign shrines to be uh, allowed in the land, or if I misspoke there, at the very least, places of sacrifice that weren't Jerusalem, that weren't the place that God, his temple. And so, and he'd gotten proud. So he had a besetting sin. Anyway, he'd been a good king. It was a time of prosperity, and he dies. In a, worldly, in a worldly sort of perspective, you could say, man, he's dead, everything, all of our security is gone. That's not what Isaiah says. He says, he starts off this vision of God that changed his life and brought him into the ministry to a place of full surrender by saying, in the year, about 739 B.C., by the way, yes, this happened in history, yes, did the whole, all of Scripture. So, yes, Christianity is, you know, the Judeo-Christian faith is something that's been recorded God stepped into time and space. It can be proven or disproven. It is a historical thing, not just a bunch of ideals about how to live, okay? 
So at about 739 BC, this king dies, and a king dies, a good king dies, and how does Isaiah start this vision? He says, in that year, I saw the king. I saw the king, the Lord Almighty. He's the king over all kings. He raises up kings. He deposes kings. He causes nations to wax. He causes nations to wane. He is the only God. He is the only ultimate king. He always has been and he always will be. Every knee, even those who don't want to, who have spent their whole lives arguing against his existence, will bow the knee to the king of kings, to God Almighty. And Isaiah sees this God. And let's just spend a little time in this first point, a vision of God, okay? Point one, a vision of God. Looking upward with Isaiah, what do we see? Well, first of all, he sees the king, and he says that the train or the hem of his robe fills the temple. So Isaiah is in this temple, this place where God meets with his people, whom he's chosen for himself to show the world what he's like, to bless all of creation through his people Israel. Isaiah is in that holy place, and he basically says just the very hem, the very bottom or, of his robe or the train, the back of it, just a bit of his garment, like the low piece, it filled the entire building such that you get this picture of, it, it was, it was it, he, I, all I could do was look up. The very bottom of his existence was down here filling everything in my sight. And I just looked up and saw this high and exalted king. And that's, that's indeed what he says. He says, the train of his road filled the temple and he was high and he was exalted. You know, when I, when I try to get my tiny pea brain around God, because we're broken, we're born into sin, and it's not natural for us to think of God as he is. So we have to be given a vision through his perfect word of him, and ultimately one that leads us to his perfect word, Jesus Christ, which shows us exactly what God is like. But when I try to get my mind and my heart around God's highness and his exaltedness, it helps me by thinking of the stars. And I, I have to look up to see them. They're so vast, especially with what we know of them, that they just put you in your place. They fill you with a sense of awe. And to think that God just spoke them. He breathed them into existence. So you think about just one statistic, the Milky Way galaxy, our home. It's like our little neighborhood in the cosmos. And um, it's a spiral galaxy. So it takes, so light travels, what, 186,000 miles per second? I think that's right. So something like 20 times, 10 times around the earth in one second. That's how fast light goes. It, takes, it travels 93 million miles from the sun to earth. So when you wake up and you see the first light of the sun, that was at the sun, at this burning ball of nuclear fusion eight minutes previous. I mean, 93 million miles in eight minutes. That's not, it, take, it takes me longer now to make my coffee in the morning because I do a French press. And uh, that's how fast light travels. And yet the Milky Way galaxy, which is just a tiny corner of the universe, is 51,000 light years, not across, radius. So double that just for the diameter. The average di radius of the Milky Way is 51,000 years that light takes to travel. That's the distance of our tiny galaxy. And, we're, and that's just one of billions that we know about. And we live in a tiny corner on one of the arms, sort of like 
midway between the end of the arm and the, and the middle, which would just absolutely consume and destroy us if we were there. And so I think of the stars for God's vastness, or as they say in Britain, his vastness, which I think sounds a little better, for his vastness. And also, I was reading, Seth and I are my oldest son, Seth. Oh, by the way, my, two of my kids are here. Seth just raised his hand. What's up in the house? Um, he, my, my daughter's here as well, Avery. She's five. And right as I was going back to put up my phone to, to film things for our volunteers to film this, this gathering, uh, she looked at me. She goes, Dad, is the service over? It's like, I certainly hope not. I'm going to preach, babe. Um, but Seth and I are doing an anatomy project right now, and we're building out this human body, and I get to trace him on paper, and then we put all the organs and the bones in there and everything. And his book is fascinating. So 125, the human body has 125 million on average, give or take a few, or excuse me, trillion. That's a huge difference. All right? Huge. Um, so what, a thousand million is a billion and a thousand billion is a trillion? So these are numbers so vast that our, that our minds can't even get around them. Don't even try to think about the national debt. You'll just get depressed. <laughs> Fix your eyes on God. It's in the trillions. That's right. Um, but 125 trillion, with a T, uh, red blood cells in our body, and they, a red blood cell lasts on average about 120 days. And so your body is making two million red blood cells every, do the math, just kidding, second. What are you doing to help out that process? That's right. That's, so God is the highest of high. He's also involved intimately in all of the nano details of our lives. And he is, by the word of his power, holding up these things. If he removed that word for a second, we'd all be gone. Just like if gravity stopped working for a nanosecond, our earth would just go, it'd be like spinning around the sun, you know, just gone. We'd freeze within a matter of seconds. I mean, God is high, and Isaiah sees him, and all of his other fears and all of his other concerns and all of his other anxieties, my company, the guy I work for, the girl I want to like me, the guy I want to like me, just somebody please like me, I'm lonely, or man, my spouse, <laughs> or whatever it is that you're looking to that's causing you anxiety, that you're fearing, that you're looking to to satisfy you. And for each of us, it's at least one thing per day, per second. I mean, gosh, we are idle factories, like Calvin says. We're bent. We're broken just in disrepair. We're, excuse me, we're born in disrepair. Whatever it is that's causing you fear and consternation and anxiety and to walk around with a load on you, the only thing that is going to push that out and eviscerate that is a greater fear, a greater vision to get your eyes on the one God, the only king of the universe, to have him fill your vision as it filled Isaiah's, and to fear him as he is worthy to be feared. <clears throat> There's a World Series baseball game. This is anecdotal because I heard it and I never read it, so sorry, I don't have a name. But it, I don't think it's, it's, it's a true story. A, a World Series game right after the Second World War and, and a guy that had done active, you know, back in the day, like, you could be a professional ball player and go off to war. I mean, Elvis went and served somehow, you know? So <clears throat> you, uh, you did that kind of thing. He had, he had just gotten back from World War II, survived, of course, was playing in a World Series game, made a big play, and afterwards the interviewer said, oh, pressure, tell us about how you handled that, man. Wait, I can't remember if it was an at-bat or if it was a 
big play that he, he made in the field, but I think it was an at-bat. He said, pressure? Pressure? And I've, I've seen people die. I've had friends die on my lap. You know, I've been at war. This is a game. Perspective. Perspective. This guy, there was some pressure here in the game, but he had seen things that just completely displaced, completely pushed out. This is what Isaiah is dealing with here. He sees something. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have other pressures and other fears. It means that in light of the living God, high and exalted, with his train filling the temple, everything else gets put in its proper place. It's a game. First things first. Jesus said, don't fear him who can, him who can only kill the body. That sounds like a, that's a strange statement. What a conversation starter. What? Isn't that everything? No. Don't, fill, don't fear him who can only kill the body. <clears throat> In other words, man. <clears throat> I spend most of my life fearing man. He said, don't fear that. He said, I will tell you. You, feel, you think he's going to say, just don't fear like that. You think he's got a t-shirt on like as he's saying this. No fear, man. That's not what Jesus does. He says, no, no, no. I'll tell you someone else to fear. Let me give you someone to fear. Fear him who can cast your eternal soul and body into hell. That's a better person to fear. Fear him. Isaiah 2, the end of that chapter, he says this. He says, why do you fear man? This is God speaking. In whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? Of what, of what account is he compared to the living God? Guys, we have our eyes focused, so trained on these people that we want desperately to like us. This situation, as long as we stay there, we're going to stay miserable. We're not going to understand what God wants us to understand. And revival's not going to start. You know where revival starts? Right here. Revival has to start being made alive. It's not a, it sounds like such a religious, like, camp revival, old-timey. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time. And I like that song. But revival means to make alive again. It's quite non-religious in that sense. There are pieces of me and pieces of you that are dead or that are dying or that are tired or that are weary for all the wrong reasons. You can be weary for the right reasons, depressed grayed out in a world full of life and color with a God who is reigning. And those pieces that are dead are being given over to things that can never satisfy, to things that you ought not to fix your vision on. Isaiah is saying, do you want revival here? Do you want to be made alive again so that revival goes from here and gushes out, and splashes on everybody that you encounter? Do you want to be a body of people where you see revival happen in your lifetime? Be a people who fix your eyes on the living God. So, so Isaiah sees this God high and lifted up, and he sees these, these seraphim, these, these seraphs, I think it is in the English. Seraphim, like keep it Hebrew. Im is the plural masculine ending in the Hebrew. So he sees two seraphs, and seraphs, literally the word uh, seraph means burning one. That's frightening. So he sees these two burning, fiery creatures in the temple over God. Now, in the temple, see, God had the temple built out, if you read the end of Exodus and Leviticus, perfectly to a T so that it would be a replica of his house in heaven where he lives. And so in the actual earthly temple, on the ark, which is in the holiest place of God's presence that one priest appointed can only enter once a year, there are two uh, carven images of these seraphs, and they're, they have their wings outstretched over the place where God comes and dwells, the mercy seat where God comes and dwells. And so 
Isaiah sees the real thing, the thing of which the Holy of Holies and the temple and the tabernacle is just a replica. It's just a copy. It's just a picture of the fact that God, through innocent sacrifice, um, comes down to dwell with his people on earth from heaven and connects the two, okay? So Isaiah sees the real thing. He sees above God these burning ones, these burning creatures with six wings. Why do I need six, class? You know. Why do I need six? So two, I got the production booth in the back. Give me the answers. Yeah, two, they're covering their eyes because we can't, even we can't look at God. Sinless awesome creatures that if you even try to get close without having a pass, you're done for. And they, they cover their eyes because God's too holy, and they cover their feet because the feet tend to represent sort of the stuff that gets dirty. They cover their feet. They dare not, God dare not see the, and the two, they got to they gotta stay flying, right? So they got the two to fly with, and they're just, they're just burning and flying there with their six wings, terrifying to look at. And they're constantly calling out a phrase that only occurs once in the Old Testament. Right here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Okay? The whole earth is full of his glory. The one time that this word appears, I believe that any adjective appears three times in a row to describe God in the Old Testament, but certainly holy here. It's the one thing they choose to call out over and over again, what is God like? It's not good, good, good. Just, 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 or great, 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 or beautiful, 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 or loving, loving, loving. All those things are true about God, infinitely. But what they choose to say is holy, holy, holy. Okay, it's the Hebrew superlative. There's no way of saying holiest in Hebrew. Well, there is a way, and it's this way. You repeat the word three times, okay? And it's called the trisagion. In theology, okay? This is the trisagion, the thrice holy proclamation. What does it mean? Two things to boil it down. Two things. What is this God like? He's holy, holy, holy. One, he's morally pure. So in short, he just, there's no sin in him. There's no even shadow or intimation of sin, even close to him. He cannot look on anything that's less than pure and good and true and beautiful because he is those things. He's the source. He's not just true. He's truth. He's not just beautiful. He is beauty itself. Psalm 1611, he holds all pleasures in his, in his right hand forevermore. He is the source of all good things. And anything that has a shadow about it, that is dark, that is perverse, that is hopeless, that is broken, that is horrid, uh, that is murderous, that is perverse, cannot be near him. And it's hard for us to imagine that but it's easy to imagine something like a piece of wood careening toward the sun, and it doesn't get too, too close before it just burns up. That's easy to imagine because the sun is ferociously hot. Just imagine God is like that, except the sun is like, Pee, to God. You know, there are two words devoted in the Hebrew scriptures in the Genesis account of creation. God makes all creation Spends a lot of time talking about how he makes man in his image and woman. But only two words, et hakokavim, making the stars. It was like an easy thing to God. The sun is nothing compared to God's power and his goodness. If anything, it's not so much that the, he does hate sin, but sin can't be around God. If it gets even somewhat close, it'll just burn up because Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. It's his very nature. You can't. 
you can't be a sinner or having committed even one sin and exist where God is. And that is very bad news. So that's the first thing it means. It means that God is morally pure, but it also, holy also means that he's separate. He's distinct. He's other. Cornelius Van Til is a famous sort of early to mid-century um, reformed theologian. He taught up at Westminster for a while. He's Dutch, if you can't tell from a name like Van Til. And he would, back in the day, have chalkboards before the whiteboard. Anybody remember chalkboards? And, you know, the professor would be, and he'd get the stuff all over. So I had an overweight professor with a belly, and he'd, you know, come on, and he'd, get, he'd turn around, and, and it'd break, it'll break on you. And, um, he would draw up on the board quite often, apparently, at the beginning of his classes, two circles, one big one, and then below it, dis- unattached, a smaller one. And he would draw two vertical lines attaching them. God and man, distinct, separate, other, apart. God made us in his image, but what did he say in Isaiah and in the Psalms? You thought that I was altogether like you, Psalm 50, but Isaiah 58. But my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. He is, when I try to get my mind around how other God is, instead of thinking about the stars, I think about his, the fact that he is ase in the Latin. He is of himself. What does that mean? He is self-existent. Think about that for, just try to, Give two seconds of quality thought to the fact that he is a necessary being, the only one. He, there has never been a time, before time, ever, where he was not. Ever. He has always existed, and he always will. He cannot not be the God who was, the God who is, the God who is to come. That his existence is the necessary thing for all other things, okay? This God, he is so other. He is so distinct. He is so separate. And the, one of the essences of sin, if I can say that, is to think that he is like us. Yes, we are made in his image. Yes, we are his beloved. Yes, we are special in creation. But to think that, God, you're, you're pretty much just like me. No. You thought I was altogether like you. My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. But curiously, how does this God who is morally pure and other and distinct and separate, how do, what is the phrase that, that follows this holy, 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 this trisagion? It is, it is um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That word, it's a military word. It basically means the Lord of armies. But what are his armies? The first time this word appears is in Genesis 2 verse 1. It says, the Lord made all the heavens and all the earth and their host. It's a creational word. All of creation is at God's disposal. All creation does his bidding. Only we and the fallen angels angels can rebel and say, no, God, I don't want to do what you... But eventually we will all bow the knee. All of creation is God's host, his army, and he has wed himself to it. He loves his creation. He has chosen to attach himself to this creation that is other, apart from him. He has set his love upon it. And so Isaiah sees this God. This is by far the longest point, guys. And he sees this God, and what happens? The whole temple starts shaking at the voice of these holy ones, saying, holy, holy, holy. They're burning. They're flapping their wings. They're covering their eyes and their hands. And, his, and God's just, bottom of his robe is just filling this whole place, and he's just got his head up. And he's looking at this God, this vision of God. And 
the temple, the place he's in, starts shaking. It's very foundations, the very threshold of its doors, and smoke fills it. In other words, you can't see God. He's terrifying. The things around him are terrifying. They're going to keep you from him. We can't get close. He is awesome, which leads us to a vision of self, point two. Isaiah looks upward and he sees God in 739 B.C., He's filled with this vision, and through that vision, guys, he gets a vision of who he really is. The only way we can know, the only way you can know yourself, and we spend thousands of dollars in psych offices, and I'm not saying don't go do that, but we, we, we read books, we talk to other people, we go to coffee shops, we do introspection, navel-gazing. Isaiah shows us clearly and straight and simple right here. The only way you can truly know yourself is to get a vision of God. John Calvin, he said it on the first page of his Institutes. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self are ineluctably related. You cannot know God and not know who you are. You cannot truly know yourself and not know God. And we've said God doesn't exist in our society, and we're trying so desperately to know who we are. It'll never work. Never! Isaiah shows us that in one verse. He spends four verses showing us this vision of the living God And then quickly in verse 5, under vision of self, he says this, his immediate response, he cries out, Oi! Lee! That's the Hebrew, okay? He cries out, I like the Hebrew better, Woe! Is that how the ESV has it? Woe is me. The Hebrew is Oi! Which is so onomatopoeic. It's such a great way of saying, I'm screwed. I'm done. There are various translations. ESV, I'm lost. Isaiah sees God and his reaction, his knowledge of self tells him, in light of who God is, I am lost. I think that the KJV, the King James has, I'm undone. It's like a ball of stuff that you are is just undone. It becomes, it's unraveled. You ever had an experience where, try to get your head and heart around this, where you kind of hear like his knees shook and sometimes you get weak in the knees. Um, I remember I was, I think it might have been the first time I drove by myself without someone in the passenger seat. So I like just turned 16 and I was in a, a truck and I came this close to slamming into the back of a white Beamer, white BMW. And man, everybody else went like, it was at a, I think it was either at a light or at, he was turning left or something. And I just, oh, and I mean, everyone else left and I just sat there like, I mean, my knees were done. I couldn't have hit the gas if I'd wanted to. You know, I would have been like, because I had no feeling in them. I mean, you ever been in a situation like that where you're so, it's this catastrophe that happens? And, um, you know, Lewis talks about, he talks, C.S. Lewis talks about how there's, there are different types of fear. He's trying to describe like the dread type of fear. Oh, he says, uh, there's a type of fear where someone tells you there's a tiger right in that next room. Pretend that, okay, right outside. I was going to say, pretend that door isn't open. That would be terrifying. Um, And he comes to eat us all. So there's a tiger right outside. Okay, I'm scared. But then he says, it's a different type of fear. You use the same word. It's a different type of fear when someone says, there's a ghost. There's a ghost. There's a spirit right outside. It's a different type of fear. Do you get it? What, some of what Isaiah, he's undone in the presence of this spirit, this God who is the king, the holy, holy, holy king of all things. And when he sees this God, he knows he's undone. He just cries out, oi. 
What is it? I want to ask you this. What is it about God that when we see him as he is, utterly holy, we know we're finished? That his existence and nearness is the end of me. His holiness, his being, as I've talked about, can't countenance mine. That he is means I cannot be. That God is. When we get that realization as, we, as our vision is filled with the exalted God of all things, that he exists means I cannot be as I am. Until I get this, friends, until you get this, there won't be revival. This is the foundation for God to revive our hearts and for revival to pour out from us into this place that he has set us, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our homes, into the shops that we frequent. The king, the source of life, life, beauty and goodness, I cannot reach, I cannot get close to him lest I die. Do you see the irony here? If I get too close to life itself, I will die. That is a bad problem. And that is the problem that thrusts, that is the plot narrative that thrusts the whole narrative of scripture forward. Because God made us to be with him. He is life and goodness and beauty. There's nothing else worthwhile when you're separated from him. And yet our sin at the core of us separates us from him. We can't be with him. And yet he wants to be with us because he made us for himself. And he's loving and he's good. And so onward the narrative of scripture goes to reconcile this, to cut this Gordian knot. And Isaiah sees this, and he's right in the thick of it, and he just cries out, Whoa, oi, I am cursed. And not only am I cursed, but I'm, but he says what? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of unclean lips. What's the deal with that? It's kind of like the hem of the robe filling the temple. What's strange? Why unclean lips? In short, lips are a synecdoche for the whole, they're a piece that represents the whole deal. They, if you have unclean lips, you're unclean. Why? Because out of, as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Whatever your lips are speaking, not when you're with your friends and trying to put on a good act, but when you're with your spouse, your intimates, you give yourself a month or a year, whatever you're saying is who you are. You can't fake it for too long. Whatever comes out of your lips, that's what your heart is like, okay? If the eyes are the window to the soul, and they are, the lips are the waters that flow from it. Bitter heart, bitter words. Angry heart, angry words. Wounded heart, wounding words. Proud heart, harsh words. Perverse heart, perverse words. Freed heart, freeing words. Healed heart, healing words. He sees that he and being a person of unclean lips is just totally unclean. Completely unclean in the presence of this God, and that's a big problem, and he sees that. But he also says what? I dwell in the midst. In the middle is the word in the Hebrew. I dwell right in the middle, like a the hole in the middle of a donut. Right in the middle of a people that are just the same. And that's a problem, a people of unclean lips. And what's he saying? The one remnant on earth, the one people of God, God's called to be with him, to show the world what he's like and to bless the world through them. He's saying all of these people, I am unclean and I dwell in the midst of them and they are dirty and unclean and cannot be with God. That is a big, big problem. The creation comes to a grinding halt when it comes to hope, any hope for the world, if that is the case. And Isaiah sees that. He sees himself and he sees his people and society around him after 
after, after. Don't, don't go looking at yourself. Don't go looking at the dude next to you first. Don't go reading the paper and looking at society looking for answers before you look and get a vision of the living God. That is how you're going to find revival in our day, revival in your heart, okay? So he sees that, and he just comes undone, and he says, we're all, we're all finished. We're all finished. What does the Bible say? Psalm 14, which Paul appropriates in Romans 3, none is righteous, not one. Ephesians 1 and 2 and elsewhere, what is salvation? It is us being dead, dead, not like a leg kicking, not like I just got revived and, oh, God's talking. Let me walk over that way. No, dead, dead. You can do nothing to get to God. He must do all, and that's what we see in this next picture. We will never choose God if left to ourselves, if choosing God is our choice. It will never, ever happen. We are an unclean people in the midst of an unclean people. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. None is righteous, not one. It's the biblical picture, and it's pretty grim. End of verse 5. Again, how, before we go into this last, the intervention and this last point, how did this accurate self-knowledge come to Isaiah? How does he see himself? Not as the psychologist told him to see himself. Just love yourself. Whatever your heart goes with, go with that. You're good. No. How does he see himself truly? He sees God, and he sees himself. That's the only way it happens. He says what? To recap us, at the end of verse 5, I see all this because I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm cursed. I'm lost. I'm undone. Woe is me. Oi. And I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. That's how I know. Guys, we have to get to this place before there can be revival. We must see God as he truly is to see ourselves and others for who we truly are. And when we do, we despair as he did. And it is only, I want to push this point in before getting you to the glorious good news of the gospel. It is only at this point of despair, despairing of ourselves and our condition in light of who God is, that hope comes. And it is at this precise point that hope comes. Hope comes in no other place. Can you get that? Can you understand that? This is where the hope of the goodness and mercy, undeserved favor of the living God comes to us in the valley of our self-knowing in light of God. The Puritans called it the valley what? It's from these dark places that the, sh the stars shine out the most brightly. And it's from this trough that God comes to us. He doesn't say, now get up with that little twitching leg of yours. Come on, you're not dead. He doesn't say that. We're dead. And he comes to us. When we see our deadness in light of him, he comes to us and he makes us right. Before point three, talking about that. In verse six, good news, what happens? And one of, as he says this, verse six, and one of the seraphs, flew to me. He flew to me. Oh, dear Lord. Before we get to the good news, just imagine you've never read this before. This is, this is getting even more terrifying. Remember what these things are like? They're burning ones. They're God's bodyguards, and they have six wings. And Revelation says they have eyes in all the wings. They can, in other words, they can see. They don't, don't think peacock. Think they can see everything. They, there's nothing inside that you do in the inner recesses of your heart. No thought, no action, nothing that they haven't seen and that, if that's their vision, what do you think God's is? And they're coming toward Homie <clears throat> with, they're burning ones, and they're coming with a ritzpah, okay? 
with a hot stone or coal, glowing orange, burning. They grab it off of what? The altar with tongs. They ain't going to touch it. Even the burning ones ain't going to touch this. Oh, but they're going to put it on his lips. And they apply it, fly over to him, and touch his lips with this burning fire from the altar. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth. Searing pain, right? Judgment, right? Wrath, right? Surprisingly, no. Because surprisingly, because of the scene I've just painted, but also in the Old Testament, fire is not a cleansing agent, typically. Fire is a symbol of God's wrath against sin and evil. And, I, and Isaiah has just admitted, I'm in trouble. I am a man who is unclean in the midst of a people who are unclean. And so when fire comes over from fiery being to touch lips, that is not seemingly good news. But it touches his mouth and what? Amazing words of hope from this seraph. Behold, your sin or guilt, the word can mean both, guilt caused by sin, is turned aside. Asur in the Hebrew. It literally means turned aside. So it doesn't say eviscerated, doesn't say disappears, it says turned aside. So like a knife plunging towards you and what, a shield comes up right in time and the knife gets poof, turned aside. Point is, it was coming toward me and now it's going somewhere else. It's still going somewhere else. It's, it's been taken from me and put somewhere else. Okay, the next word, um, and your sins, so your sin, your guilt has been turned aside and your sins or offenses, that's what that word means, okay, have been atoned for. The word there is literally covered. Your sins and guilt have been turned aside, they've been thwarted, and they've been covered. So that, and again, they haven't been removed completely, but what? They've been covered. Tops over them, you don't have to look at them anymore. They've been taken off you and put aside, put elsewhere, but they're still there. You take that cover off, Pandora's box. But it's good news for Isaiah. It's good news for him. Um, this man who has confesses that his lips are unclean, that those very lips have been touched and cleansed. We are healed, friends, at the point of our confession. We are healed at the point of our confession. It is enough if you do not know Jesus to say, Jesus, Son of the living God, that cross was for me. You died in my place, I believe. This is the point of your confession at which you are saved. He will give you his Holy Spirit. He has taken your sin on the cross. He has borne that penalty. You're done. If you're a Christian... Ongoing confession of sin is a regular part of your growth in life as a new creature in Christ. We are healed at the point of our confession, forgiven of sin, but still trapped by various things. But we have the power not to sin, and we have the forgiveness we need in Christ. Name the sin. Confess it to God. Confess it to others that you trust, and there is healing in that. I have a problem. With, I'm not okay, saying this. I'm acting as a... I have a problem with pornography, okay? And I have in the past, personally, okay? But I'm saying... I have a problem with pornography, friend. I lust. I, had a, I, have, I struggle with lust on a regular basis. Um, I gossip. I gossiped about Sally the other day. Sorry, Sally. Why is it always Sally? Okay, I think I'm the best person ever, and I don't need God, and that I'm better than other people. Pride, arrogance, whatever it is, we could go on. I could just go on all day and night, right? Whatever it is, confess it. You will be healed at this point. 
the help, notice as I've hinted, the help that Isaiah gets, the cleansing, does he have anything to do with it? No. He cries out after seeing God. He sees himself and he cries out, here is my true state. I'm wretched. I'm lost. I'm undone. What? The help comes. It's an alien help from the outside. Alien, outside. It comes from the outside, not from inner strength. Just find your inner man. Just, just whatever you're good with. Go with it. Your heart. Trust your heart. No. It's not how the healing happens. It comes from outside. It comes to him through no good of his own. It's terrifying, but it heals, and the healing is instant, instantaneous alien salvation. Alex Mottier, who wrote a brilliant Isaiah commentary, says, Isaiah contributes nothing at all. All is of God. He contributes nothing. You contribute nothing to your salvation. All is of God through the work and person of Jesus. That is, by the way, the good news of Jesus. If you contributed anything, you would still be dead in your sins and trespasses because you were dead, and dead men and women can't do anything. The good news isn't God does most of the work. Meet him a little bit. Like, take one step. Meet him halfway. That's not the gospel. That's Jesus plus, and the plus just makes the gospel not the gospel anymore. It's not good news. God does it all from the outside, applied to you, and the healing is instant. But the sin's still there. Turned aside, covered, okay? Your sins have left you in the guilt that they brought, but how? Well, fire. Let's turn back to fire. Fire helps Isaiah here rather than hurting him, as I've said. And fire in the Old Testament symbolizes God's wrath, typically, not his cleansing. But that coal is taken from the altar. And what is the altar? The altar is the place where innocent things are brought that don't deserve punishment, and they're killed. Why? Because God hates animals? No. God loves animals. He made them. And actually, there are plenty of laws in the Old Testament that talk about not killing animals unnecessarily or cruelly. Don't boil a kid, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. You can kill a kid, but don't do it cruelly. He loves the sparrow that touches the ground. He made that sparrow. And you know how complicated that sparrow is? You could spend all your life with a team of people and never make a sparrow. Or a cell, for that matter, that creates what? Anyway, okay, I'm not even going to go there. Point is, God doesn't hate animals. He loves them. But something innocent must die in place of the guilty for the guilty to continue to be with God. It must be offered in lieu of, in place of the guilty party. Okay? That innocent thing must die as a representative because God hates sin and he can't abide it. So something has to suffer. Something has to take the punishment that guilty thing did. And later we're told in the New Testament, Paul tells us, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs of all those sacrifices never took away a single sin. It was all a picture for thousands of years God was giving us until one day John saw Jesus and he says, behold to his, his cadre of people. Look, it's the Lamb of God who has finally come to take away, to actually take away the sins of the world. Jesus in Luke 12, verse 49, he says this. He, say, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. At the cross, at the cross, Jesus crawled upon the altar of sacrifice and was burned up as the Passover lamb to whom all those Passover lambs had been sacrificed, had been, had been pointing previously through millennia, through centuries and centuries, for 1,400 years. They never took away sin, but he said, I'm about to undergo a baptism of fire, could be completely immersed in this fire of God's wrath against sin. 
Someone has to take it. If I don't, you will. And then you will be crying out, woe is me forever. There will be no way. Death cannot keep me down. And so I'm going down to rise again. But I've got to pay that price for you, for anyone who will look to me. He is the reason. He is the thing to which this call points. He is the reason that Isaiah's sin, Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was taken away. How do we know this? Romans 3.25. Paul says this, In his divine forbearance, God had what? Passed over previous sins. He had turned them aside. He had covered them, but they were still there. On the cross, Jesus paid retroactively, presently, and proactively for every single sin that will ever be committed for those who look to him for salvation. Okay? He was the propitiation, Paul says a verse before, the wrath bearer of God. This cross at once shows us God's absolute justice and intolerance of sin and his absolute love for you. He went to the ultimate lengths to get you back. John 12, verse 39, amazing. Stay with me. We're closing down here. I need five more minutes from you, okay? Stay with me. Last gospel, John, chapter 12, chapter 12. John says this amazing thing. He says, Isaiah, okay, this prophet who's seen seen this vision of God in 739 BC, Isaiah saw Jesus. What? Jesus was born 700 plus years after Isaiah saw this vision. John says, Isaiah saw Jesus. And what does, he, what does he quote from the Old Testament to show what he means? This set of verses. Actually, a set of verses right that directly follow this passage. What is, what is John saying? Here's my question to you. What is John saying? John is saying, Isaiah saw the king high and lifted up. And who was that king high and lifted up that terrified him? That king was Jesus. That king that was high and exalted was Jesus, the God of hosts, the God of battles, the Lord of all creation, the only king, the only God, became one of us and so cloaked his majesty that we completely missed it and worse, crucified him. And that same God that was so high and exalted that Isaiah was terrified and truly saw himself and said, I'm in dire straits and all the people around me and everyone in the world is also in dire straits and there's no hope. And guess what? That high and exalted king came down to be one of us. In in John chapter 3, this man comes to him at night for fear of the Jews. His name is Nicodemus. And he starts asking questions. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, Nicodemus, just like the serpent, the snake, was put on a pole, the snake was cursed in Jewish culture because of Genesis 3. This cursed thing is lifted up in the desert, in this howling waste that sin has made of the world. Put on a pole, and anyone who looks at this cursed thing that's lifted up will be saved through no good of himself, outside, alien, and instant salvation. He says, Nicodemus, that snake was nothing. It was there to point to me. I have to be. The Son of Man must be lifted up, exalted, just like that snake. What is he talking about? He's talking about the cross. This God who is so high and untouchable that we can't even get close through through anything inside of us comes down and says, I have to be exalted in a way, I have to be lifted up in a way nobody has ever imagined, even though the scriptures foretold it, on a cross. I have to be lifted up on a cross, the worst possible death, and through that sacrifice, everything changes. Okay, so what does that mean for us? So a vision of God, a vision of self, 
And lastly, and quickly, a vision for everything else, okay? Isaiah's response and reaction is this, very, very simply. When he's made right, when God intervenes and makes him right and turns aside and covers his sin, he hears God. It's the first thing that happens. He hears God. He has a voice. He has an ear for God's voice all of a sudden. And God says, who am I going to send? I hears God. And what does he do? Secondly, he responds instantly and briefly. Full participation, full surrender. Hear my, send me. What has to happen for us to get to that place of heart revival where we are just like crawling on the altar of sacrifice and saying, Lord, anything, I'm yours. Just send me, please do something with me. No rights. We have to experience his outside through no good of our own coming to us for our sakes at ultimate cost to himself, laying his life down, lifted up on a cross for us. When that hits, when that falls into our heart, when it sinks into our guts, when it fills our mind, revival in, out, out there, a vision for everything else and of everything else is easy. It's easy once those two things have happened, okay? Closing down, I want to give you two images. In the Great Commission, which just preached last week, right? Matthew 28, I called it, I think, the hinge of history. Okay, why? It's sort of like the funnel piece at which everything converges. Because Jesus says at that moment, he's just died on the cross and risen, and he says, at that moment, he says, go. All disciples, I have all authority, therefore go everywhere and preach this good news, and I'm with you always. Okay? My New Testament professor, Mike Kruger, he said, this is weird, it's unexpected, and it's a strange command. Why? Why is this command what Jesus gives on going out strange? It's strange because in the Old Testament, everything leading up to this point in God's revelation has been getting narrower and narrower and narrower. You start with all creation, Genesis 1, and then you get in Genesis 12 to one nation, to Palestine. Then you get to Jerusalem by the time of David. Then you get to the temple. It's at the highest point on the temple mount in Jerusalem. Then you get to the the temple precincts even more. And if you're a woman, you can stay outside. If you're a Gentile out here, a Jewish woman, okay, you're a man, you get a little closer. And then you're a priest, you can get even closer. And then you're a certain type of priest, you get inside the actual temple. And then inside the temple, there's a holy place. And then the holy of holies, where the altar is, and the, uh, where the ark is, and the, and, the, and the seraphim, the cherubim, with their wings outstretched over the mercy seat. The holy of holies. Once a year, one guy appointed by God can go in there. And if he has to do everything that God says exactly right, and if he doesn't, he dies in God's presence. Getting close, getting more and more constricted, more and more narrow, more and more focused. This is our salvation. This is what, and then what happens at the cross? Temple, veil that separates that place from the rest of the world is top to bottom, torn. And Jesus from that point forward says, just go. Everything narrows to Christ. Everything points to Christ in the Old Testament. And from the point where Jesus is crucified, resurrected, he sins and he says, now go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the outermost extremities of the earth and just preach my gospel and I will be with you. I'll spread my glory everywhere. You want three words to summarize the entire Bible? In, cross, out. If there is not an, once we get this vision of God's self and what he has done for us in light of who he is, into our guts, there will be an explosion. Once we get his incarnation, the 
all the Old Testament pointing to this man, this God-man who came to rescue us, his incarnation, his life for us, his death in our place, his resurrection from the dead, starting a new day, and his command. His command will just be a There will be an explosion in our hearts and outward. Lord, send me. Here I am. Anything. Everything. But it has to happen here first, and that starts with a vision of God. There's a place, and I close with this. There's a place in the New Testament. There's only one other place where this holy, holy, holy occurs. I told you it only happens once in the Old Testament. It happens one other time in the whole Bible, and it's here. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Revelation 4 and 5 are two of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. In short, Revelation 4, John is taken up to heaven, and he gets this vision of heaven, the nerve center of the cosmos. The gears are pulled here, and everything on earth happens according to what happens in heaven. And John says, I saw it all. And in the middle of it, there was this unseen, terrifying God, very similar to Isaiah, very similar to the Exodus 19. There was, there was thunder and lightning, and you couldn't approach him, but he was awesome, and he had a rainbow symbolizing covenant of, around him. But he also had these terrifying creatures with faith, four different faces and all these wings inside and out, and they were crying the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And he was then, those seraphim were surrounded by other elders who are pure, unlike you and me, unless we said yes to Jesus and then we were made pure, we're made saints, we're made holy, through no good of our own. But they're, he's surrounded by these saints, these 24 saints, and then all these concentric circles. The point is, it's harder and harder and harder the closer you get into this vision, the closer you get to God to get to him. And on your own, you're never going to do it. And it says at the end of that chapter that he had a book the word of God was written in this book, and it was written perfectly on the inside and the outside of the codex or the book. It was full. It, it was God's plan for, the, for all of creation. And it was sealed with seven seals, which means it was sealed perfectly. And nobody could open it. And there are people looking around. There are angel, angelic beings looking around, trumpeting. Who can open? Who is worthy? Who's worthy to approach God, take this book, and open this, and set out God's plan for all creation? that he loves so much. The Gordian knot, God made us, we've broken all things, we can't approach him on our own, what to do? And John starts to weep. Isaiah says, woe is me. What's John's reaction? Similar, he just starts to weep. God's plan will not be fulfilled. No one's worthy. But then what happens? A hand is set on him and, and an angel says, fear not, weep not. Look, the lamb of God, the lion of Judah who looks like a lamb, he turns and he sees one who standing, he looks like a lamb that was slain. Jesus, came in weakness. He walks up in Revelation 5 all the way through these circles. They get harder and harder and harder and more and more exclusive and narrower and narrower to get to God. He walks right up to the living God and he takes the book out of his hand and he opens it. And he sets in motion the plan, all of God's plan perfectly to save his people and to renew creation. And from the center of that throne where Jesus does the work that none of us could ever do, that all the Old Testament points to, praise starts radiating like, a, like, a, like an atom bomb going off and then you just have concentric circles of shock. <laughs> Outward. It, praise just radiates in concentric circles. Start first with the seraphim, then with the elders, then with all creation. Outward. Holy. <laughs> worthy are you. Worthy are you. You are worthy to receive all praise and honor and glory and dominion and power and might. You 
reign, you, with God. You sit on his throne. What is Jesus doing? He's taking this path to an unapproachable God who's been made unapproachable by our sin, and he just cuts a hole straight up to God. Straight up, like a laser boring a hole through all of these rings that we can't possibly pierce, all this armor. And he says, follow me. Anyone who comes with me, anyone who comes in me, anyone who looks to me, just walk right on up to God and be saved. And in that salvation is hope for all of creation and for all the world. And that's the foundation for revival. How do we see God? What is he truly like? Philip, John 14, Philip, have you been with me so long? And yet you don't know. When you see the Father, when you see me, excuse me, you've seen the Father. When we see Jesus Christ, his arms outstretched on that cross, lifted up for us, we see the heart of God the Father, what he's truly like, high and exalted, full of love and compassion, full of justice. You want to know what God is like, get a vision for him in the person of Jesus Christ. With that vision of God, a vision of self, and then a vision for everything else, that's where revival flows from. Lord, would it be. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that your word and your spirit are all that we need. Jesus, you did it all for us. Get the glory. Holy Spirit, come and do your work amidst this people. Revive our hearts. Bring revival in this time, in this school, in this neighborhood, in our workplaces, in this generation, in this galleria, in this city and around the world. Lord, we are the first generation that might have a chance to see the Great Commission finished. I pray that we could be a part of that and that we, it could be with us here in this place where the nations have gathered. Lord, would you make it happen? Only you can. By your word, by your spirit, in your name we pray. Amen.